Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Robert. Hey, I'm Zach. Join us for each episode as we apply the gospel to dive into the inner workings of the Christian faith. Are you agnostic or atheist and want to understand Christianity better? Want to learn more about Jesus? Discuss the differences between the modern and early churches? or maybe explore some of the Bible's most interesting characters, then we hope you'll join us in Achieving Christian Thought. All right. Hey, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm joined, as always, by Robert and Zach. Hey, guys, how are you? Howdy, I'm great. And I am dancing in the sunshine, not literally. Nice. Well, I think we've got a, another uh, kind of fun, interesting episode uh, planned for this episode. I know if you joined us uh, for last episode, we kind of dove into um, the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament talking about some prophecy um, and some um, uh, hints of, of Jesus to come kind of in the Old Testament and what uh, some of the Jewish leaders would have read about, what they would have learned that foretold the arrival of Jesus and uh, kind of what that meant. Um, and I believe for this episode here, we're going to dive into uh, kind of the canon of the Old Testament. Um, so with that, uh, hi, Robert. Hi, Zach. I'll let you guys uh, kick us off. Hey. Hey. All right. So when we talk about Old Testament canon, that is... Probably, probably creates a lot of questions. It probably creates a lot of, um, you know, different denominations handle things differently. It's like, why does this denomination accept the apocrypha? What is the apocrypha? What is pseudepigrapha? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are those big terms, and what does it mean? And how do we know that we got the right books of the Bible? Um, because you know, to be fair, you know, I remember. And I was a new believer, and I was talking to one of my neighbors, and he was like, "Well, how do you how do you know you guys got the right books?" At that might at that time, you know, I might have been a believer for a month, if if that, maybe even just a couple weeks. And I was like, you know, I don't know, but I know there's an answer out there. So get back to you and un unfortunately you know through time you know i wasn't able to get back in touch with that individual but i did the research and so um and we talk about the old testament and we talk about how we know that we got the right books um and what about these other books why does why does this group over here talk about the apocrypha why is that not accepted in in many of the christian circles um so let me back up a little bit we kind of talked about uh the origin of the old testament uh not last uh recording but the recording before that i believe and we kind of talked about how um you know at the time of moses uh god actually spoke to Moses and Moses understood God, which I think that's an important idea. That's an important concept um, that Christianity and uh, both 
Christianity and Judaism both um, talk about is that God is not just some abstract idea. He's actually involved in his creation. He didn't just, like the watchmaker theory, he didn't just step out after he created all things and it's like, you guys got this. Um, no, he was involved. And, and so um, that is probably one of the most key doctrines when it comes to uh, the canon is that God has spoken to men at various points in time in the uh, and uh, through various circumstances. God has spoken to these men, these prophets, and these prophets were able to adequately record what God said to them. This wasn't just a burning feeling. This was God actually speaking to them audibly. And like kind of like we mentioned last time, sometimes God would reveal prophecy. Sometimes he would reveal visions. Sometimes it would be apocalyptic literature through visions and stuff like that. So... Some of that was how do we articulate that? How do we write that down and things of that nature? But that was that's one of the core doctrines to the canon is that God can and did did speak to men of the Old Testament. And that was one of the criterias was that he didn't just say one thing and then later on change his entire message it was it was the same it was consistent a theologically way of saying it is kind of like a um a uh my goodness i forgot the, the term uh revelation uh progressive revelation but what that i guess it's kind of like a loaded thing there a loaded uh phrase but what i mean by progressive revelation is that god revealed himself, then later on through subsequent generations, subsequent uh, events in history, he would reveal himself again. And it would be building off what the previous generation had. Again, for instance, a good example of this. Um, during the days of Moses and shortly thereafter, you have Joshua and Caleb. Um and in the beginning, you had the five books of the Bible, plus, you know, the Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, Exodus, I believe. And then Jer uh, Joshua was another book. So, like, then, fast forward generations, and you'd have another prophet would come and do miracles to verify that he was truly from God, that people should listen to him. And then that those revelations then be built upon those previous books that God had delivered to the people of Israel. Uh, a great example of that would be like um, Isaiah, for instance. That came later on in history, but through um, consistency teachings of what was revealed in the past, plus maybe a miracle that... Isaiah did, or he envisioned, or whatnot, kind of like verified that he was a prophet of God, then he would elevate his writings, they would elevate his um, 
teachings, so to speak, and say that this is truly from God, and that we're going to hold these view this this view of of the scriptures that He revealed to us as sacred, because He would tell the truth about God, which was a foundational point to any of the Old Testament canons. Um, and then it would also not just do that, but it also talk about something that was taking place currently, and also some futuristic event that would take place in the future. Um, like maybe he could talk about, God would say, this is going to happen, and that would be like within the next 10 years, but then he would talk about something that would happen many generations down the road, such as the coming of the Messiah, or something like that. Because God would be consistent with that, the people of God would then take those recordings, those writings, and elevate those and consider them sacred texts. So that's kind of like how we got the, is we call it the dual authorship of the canon. Where of course, God is the ultimate author, but he also used humans, he spoke to humans, Humans then spoke his words, and then they were adequately recorded. Okay, that covered everything. Let's let's call it a night. Let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> Fifteen minute special episode. No, uh, but uh, that was a phenomenal intro to uh, a very very quick crash course in the concept of inspiration in scripture. Uh, something I'd love to add uh, about the whole idea of canon in general. I'll cover both testaments, uh, really, because old is kind of, to an extent, it's it's kind of a mystery. This idea that the people of God, they did not pick out certain books. Some of this will overlap with what Zach said. I can't help it. It's the same topic. You're good. <laughs> uh, just, they didn't. Give, just give me the credit for it. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. But uh, this whole show is actually Zach impersonating two voices. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Shocking plot twist. Twelve episodes in. But uh, it's not about God's people pointing at particular books that they appreciate most and saying, okay, this is the Word of God. That's the Word of God. That book's kind of icky. It's not the Word of God. That book's weird. It's not. That one's nice. It's it, it will be the Word of God. Because there were so many things that, I mean, even the Jews were offended by some of the things that were written. We are we today are offended by some of the things that are written in there, but what it was was it was the God's people recognizing what was already there. In other words, we believe that the inspiration has always been in those particular books, but there are certain things that cause us to recognize it when we see it. Kind of like uh, we are people with metal detectors looking for gold. We did not put the gold in the ground, but we're able to find it and dig it out when it's there. And once we have it above ground, we store it and we keep it and we use it. So some of the things that actually put this whole process together, uh, today in the modern world, uh, I'll be honest, we actually know more about the New Testament canon and those decisions than the old. Uh, by the time Jesus comes to the earth, Old Testament canon had already been established by the rabbis and the Jews. So we kind of take their their thinking for, for granted there, and we trust that they were faithful to discover those books again. But uh, some, of the, some of the reasons that those books are accepted, I'll focus on the old for a while before I move into detail in the, on the new, but some of the reasons those books were considered inspired, they were written by very, very trustworthy sources, and there was genuine evidence that 
those people really wrote them, that they were not forgeries. Moses, according to tradition, wrote the first five. We have, you know, people who are very, very trusted in the temple. It's very likely that anonymous priests, tradition says Ezra. He's a very famous priest, scribe from the Old Testament itself. But whether he did or didn't, very trusted priests put together First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles in particular. And so made sure that Israel would have a record before those those uh, or, uh, oral traditions passed away. So these were people who that they could be trusted to have faithful history, people who could be trusted to have given a genuine account of what God did and what each generation witnessed as they saw God move, as they tried to tell their children and their children's children of the things that God had done in their history. And so uh, you have the wisdom literature, that's the poetry, and everything, because it, it, those are collected because they were written by David and Solomon two most famous, most beloved kings in their entire history. And they, it was accepted from a very, very early date that those were the authors, and so they never saw any reason to sway from those, those uh, opinions of authorship for those, for those songs and poems. But skipping over to the New Testament, because that, that almost just basically covers everything we know and can say about the Old Testament canon. Well, the New Testament canon is really where it gets a little steeper. Because there were books that were disputed in the Old Testament. Eventually, they were basically shunned as the Apocrypha. And we could talk about the Apocrypha in another episode if we don't get to it tonight, and that's fine. The New Testament, that is when you get into the depth of analysis as the early church took a look at what was being written and passed around. So some of the biggest things that we're looking for were I'll explain what it means. It's it's a jumble of words if you've never heard it before, but apostolic authorship. We're looking for people who were with Jesus or were directly with people who were with Jesus. They would not accept anything one generation away from the apostles. You had to be an apostle or you had to be in the direct personal presence of one in order to have been author of any New Testament scripture that they accepted as inspired word. Matthew was written by one of the twelve. Mark was not, but John Mark was a very loyal helper to Paul and to Simon Peter. According to tradition, Mark wrote down the memories of Peter. That's why, one, it's the shortest, because they're not his own memories. But it's also why it's the oldest, because he is writing down the memories of somebody who had been with Jesus so deeply for so long. You have... uh, Luke, another person who was not an apostle, but he was a direct helper of Paul. Luke did research in order to spread the gospel that he had accepted underneath Paul. That's why he wrote the book of Acts, too, is because he was the researcher. He wanted to bring all these pieces together. And you have John, who was one of the twelve. And, of course, I've mentioned Paul. He was one of he was definitely an apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote 75% of the New Testament by himself. Then you get to the last few letters, uh, Peter, uh, John again, uh, James, who was a brother of Jesus, but he was very close to the apostles and, of course, to Jesus himself. He literally came from Mary, James and Jude. Then you have Revelation that ends once again with John. So you have uh, books written by apostles, things that are very, very early. 
earliest uh, writings we have about the books, and I mean ancient Christians talking about these books, they all agree that they were written by the apostles that they were attributed to or to the people that were with the apostles. And so then we have theology. Look at these books that are that claim to be the works of these particular trustworthy people, but then you look at their theology and see if their theology ma- theology matches up. There were a lot of books, and this could be another episode in and of itself, but there was a heresy flying around in a lot of different shades known as uh, Gnosticism, and they were teaching some things that were in com- total contrast to the actual gospel of Christ. So there was this big dispute over, uh, for a while, there was this big dispute over whether or not these Gnostics whether uh, ever posed a genuine threat to the Christian faith. The answer is yes in one sense and no in another, because the Gnostic Gospels they were circulating lies about Jesus, and in a spiritual sense, they were a direct threat to the Christian faith, because they were undermining everything that they had come to know about Jesus and who he was and what he did. Then... The other account, it was never a threat to them because uh, the most trustworthy leaders were able to recognize those lies immediately. That's why those books were basically lost to time. They were only recently refound because they were just totally thrown away. And so they kept those that were stored and written by the most trustworthy authors and preaching the most trustworthy theology. For those who... Uh, don't know you. Pro- most of you who listen or right now probably know enough about what the theology I'm talking about was. But the idea that Jesus was and is God in the flesh, that He died physically, He rose physically, and He alone suffered and died to end sin. And so this basic theology, if it preaches what, what the early church knew, the apostles preached. And each of the books, when you put them side by side, tended to converge together to make the same picture, those are the books that were considered the most trustworthy to have and the ones that were inspired by God himself. This idea was passing around even among the apostles that God was in the 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 act of making sure that these things were written down for the future of the church. I, I think it's Peter, Simon Peter, I believe in Second Peter, I think, mentions that the things you're writing about, well, the things you're reading about, the things that we are writing about, apostles, things you've heard in church since you became a believer. He actually says that these things are not myths or stories devised by clever people trying to trick you, but he said that these were things, these things written are actually written in such a way that they're guided by the Holy Spirit to ensure that this message is preserved, especially when the apostles started to realize that Jesus's return was of of course still coming, but they started to realize slowly that this return was not going to be in their own lifetime. They thought that he was going to come back after a certain tiny stretch of time, that they themselves would be able to be caught up with Christ. Uh, Paul talks talks about it like that in his earliest letters, but over time they started to realize that uh, you know Jesus isn't going to come back right away. On hindsight, we know that that was so that other generations would be born and have their chance to come to faith. We're definitely thankful for that because we wouldn't be here talking about it and having faith in Jesus ourselves if he did. Amen. Amen. But uh, when 
realization started to dawn on them, they all started to see the need to write this down before it faded away. And that's interesting, and we can talk about that in a minute. But it's the idea that are the you know is the canon trustworthy in itself? Um, you know, the idea that some people claim, some people hear, or maybe someone listening out there thought this themselves that stories have slowly warped and molded until they became legendary by the time they're written down. So it's basically, you know, Christian-based fantasy stories based around Jesus. The idea that they wrote that specifically to prevent the truth from getting legendary, becoming mm-hmm. legendary, that kind of throws things right in the face of that theory. And there's more detail. It's not just us saying, oh, that's not true because we're Christians, but and there's genuine uh, facts about the, the writing of the New Testament canon that kind of throws in the face of that idea. We can go into detail about it, but those are the, the direct pieces of criteria that the church was looking for, is what would the word that they, they the, the apostles said was going to be written down and found, what are these things going to be looking like? It was early. Their authors were legitimate. Theology was legitimate. They all came together to make one big picture when you put them side by side. And and one thing that I would like to add is like whenever he talks about the apostolic inspiration or authorship, that was one of the things that the Gnostic Gospels tried to latch onto. Like for instance, they were written hundreds of years later. Um, but then they would say that they're like, for instance, a great example would be the gospel according to Mary, the gospel according to Thomas. Well, you already know, like if you if you read those, because you can find them, you can actually get uh, books of it out there. That I mean, they're fra- fragments, but you can you can get the books for them. And and you can, if if you read them, you look at the New Testament, you see a stark difference in theology, a stark difference in um acts about who Jesus was like in the New Testament um talking about the first four books of the Bible or first four four gospels excuse me um it kind of paint a uh, picture of Jesus being a kind of homeless uh man who's going around doing miracles and and you know kind of like the, like if the more you read it the more you it paints the, the same picture so to speak and then whenever you look at like like say the instance of the Gnostic Gospels of Thomas, it is contrary like the, the Jesus of the Gnostic Gospels is almost completely different than the Jesus of the Jewish traditions, like such as the book of Matthew and the book of Mark and the book of John and those things. Like there's just a stark difference. There's more Greek thinking and thought behind those, which then points to the fact that these things trying to claim apostolic authorship by saying they're by Thomas or by um, Mary or even by Moses such as in, in the because there is what's called the pseudepigrapha also in the book in the Old Testament where um, men or women whatever of the day of that time would write different books like the book of Enoch there might be some references like very small references of something mentioned in the Old Testament, well, this book would then elaborate 
on like Jewish folklore, such as giants or something like that. And that's the book of Enoch. Um, there is mention of giants in the scripture, but it's not, it's like a passing detail. It's not like they look like this and they talk like this and they act like this. But then in the book of Enoch, there's actually descriptions of them and, and different classes of them and things like that. That doesn't flow with scripture necessarily. And it comes at a much later time. So it's like, is it the author? This author is claiming to be Enoch, but we all know that this is not Enoch because he died thousands of years before this was written. It's kind of like that. Oh, yeah. It's very much like that. To go down that very fun rabbit hole of just (laughs) how bizarre some of those rejected writings were. Because, you know, he just mentioned the book of Enoch, and it's kind of like reading, you know, uh, H.P. Lovecraft horror, ancient Jewish version. <laughs> exactly. it, it's like this kind of fantastic, and by fant- I mean fantasy based, all of Satan's story, mm-hmm. and you know the the Watchers, yeah. which never no, I, I I take that back. They won't. There's only one Watcher that appears in Daniel, and he's mysterious. But the this the Book of Enoch just fills it up with uh, imagination. This is what a Watcher's like. This is what they do. Yeah, and you kind of bounce that going from you know a faulty view of what angels are like to uh, the not the Gospel of Judas. That mm-hmm. one, oh man, there were enough pieces <laughs> in the news to last you a lifetime on the Gospel of Judas. If anyone was involved enough in the story in the mid mid two thousands, and that exploded because they found the Gospel of Judas. It was shocking because it gave a new a new version of the story of Judas Iscariot. In the Gospels, the Gospels of the New Testament, Judas betrays Jesus. He goes down in history as one of the great villains of all time. We do not know his motives. We just know that he betrayed Jesus. And it is from a worldly perspective, because of Judas, that he was crucified. Now, this new shocking gospel of Judas, now most of you may have already heard it if you're interested in this topic at all, but a quick shout out for the people who don't. The gospel of Judas tried to claim that Jesus set Judas aside, made Judas promise that he would betray him in some backhanded way to make Jesus look good in the end. It's like, I know that by being a martyr, I'm going to look awesome in the long run. Promise me that you will betray me so that I can go down in history as a martyr. One, no no psychopathic cult leader that was in Jesus' spot would have ever taken that plunge. You you see David Koresh, throwing a, a modern example out there. You see David Koresh fighting for his life with a gun. You don't see him, I'm going to kill myself, and I'll be awesome in 2,000 years, and I won't be around to enjoy it. <laughs> That's not how human beings think if Jesus was merely human. But uh, I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> But I am. Uh, All that to say, I actually checked out the Gospel of Judas from the library about a year or two ago and read it. It's an absolute mess. And I can say that firsthand because I've read it for myself in a translation, I'll be honest. But not only is there so much of it missing, because again, they decided in the end it wasn't worth preserving like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were. Have every word, every jot and tittle of those gospels, but so much of Judas is missing. Over half the story is gone. The idea of Jesus 
so juvenile opens. I mean, the whole gospel of Judas opens with the apostles eating. Jesus comes and joins them and makes fun of them for eating food. It says that in black and white, and Jesus made fun of them. I read about three or four times that sentence tried to figure out what he was making fun of them for. I was like, is it because they're eating? And I get, okay, maybe that makes sense because, you know, nana, nana, boo, boo, you have to eat. I'm God. I don't. I don't know. It says that in black and white. Get through the Last Supper. Jesus makes Judas promise, and that part is so chopped up you have to piece the puzzle together as you read it because there's so many gaps in the text copies that they found then it gets into this over flamboyant book of enoch kind of super spiritualism it talks about uh, angels and judas coming up getting caught up in a vision and flying away with the angels i mean it goes from let's sit on the grass and eat to woo i'm going through the 18th dimension with afinatu the angel of time it's like it, it just the guy ran out of ideas and just went on a left field <laughs> and then just ended it when his scroll ran out of space but it's just read that and i think it if zach can verify with me i think it's the gospel of peter another example where the physical cross i'm talking about the crucifix made out of wood pops out of the tomb like a cartoon and starts talking to them out of the wood like yeah. it's literally talking to them like a cartoon and you read these things, it's like Mother Goose rhymes in in Palestine. Yeah. But then you read the Gospels in comparison and how subtle they are, how careful they are, how legitimate they are in the way that they carefully lay out everything Jesus teaches, everything Jesus says, all the way he rebuts his critics. It, it, it's genius to just say half of what is coming out of Jesus' mouth in those books. Mm. And ha- if someone sat down and just made it all up, and how high your IQ would have to be, not only to r- say the the brilliant things that Jesus say says, to do it in such a way that nobody around you in 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 that time in that culture who who witnessed history unfold able to say no that's obviously false there was no such thing as you know hickamalaeus the fifth this person doesn't exist they they were so so careful mm-hmm. that even when they mention i mean very brief mention of a well-known ruler at the time who has no genuine standing on the story that i mean in the days of King so-and-so, this happened. But you're not focused on the king. It was just a quick mention before you go to the story itself. He made sure that the, the dates of the kings do not cross. It was that carefully done, just for one verse out of several chapters, and that's in Luke. But just the way that it upholds itself when you look at these other uh, basic that's the word I'm looking for, these counterfeit gospels, the way you hold up a dollar bill to the light and it just doesn't look right. And none of them look right compared to what we know of the, the four that were actually passed down by the church. So is there any mention of, I got to tell you, I'm just sitting here just wowed by this because this is one area that I really know nothing about. So I'm just kind of soaking all this in. Um, and especially the Gospel of Judas, I had no idea about that. This is the first I'm ever hearing. Do they, 
do they know enough? I mean, obviously these were discarded, they weren't uh, legitimate, but do they know like who wrote these or do they have an idea who wrote some of these Gnostic Gospels and some of these other other texts? To, to my knowledge, no. Um, to my knowledge, that's one of the things that, because they claim to be, because the, 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 the theological term here is the apostolic authorship. They were trying to feedback on like the works of the actual apostles and stuff like that. So they claim to be Thomas, the the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary. You know all these things. They're trying to piggyback off of this authority. Don't really have. And then whenever you examine the actual content, they don't match up. Um, with what has been previously supported by apostolic authorship. Um, mm. And a good example that I mentioned this before previously is like in the Gospel of Mary, you know, at the, towards the end of it, she's like talking to Jesus and complaining because she's a woman. Um, and Jesus says, and this is in the Gospel of Mary, says, don't worry, Mary, you'll be changed into a man. So oh, that's wow. what that <laughs> in the face of Jewish tradition, of of Christianity, of Judaism, all those things. That is a very uh, Greek idea that women were evil and men were not. Like men, women and men were separate races. I mean, so that those kind of things, like you know, people like uh, people who are well-meaning will say, "Oh, look, well, there's these other." These other gospels, they it's just examples of the, the the other ideas that were out there of the church. Like, no, not really. These are examples of radical ideas that did not like in a way you can almost say that God, just as how God kind of put his seal of approval on the Bible, on the books of the, the Bible, what we consider the New Testament, it's almost like he also Away, made sure that these were not ever like be taken serious because they don't even line up theolog theologically at all, completely. Like if if you if you came if you read the Gospels, if you read the New Testament, and then I'm just gonna look at these other texts and just see what they have to say. You would not that that is comparing apples to oranges, not apples to apples. Oh yeah. I mean, you think about Jesus and the way he's presented in the canonical Gospels, the way that he upheld, you know, the, the dignity of children and of women in particular. And to imagine a world where the Gospel of Mary had become canon, that had been a, had a major part in the formation of Western civilization itself as we know it. I can't say that as dramatically as I possibly can. <laughs> yeah, imagine every woman thinking, oh, well, one day I might become a man. You will, occurs. I sure hope I become a man so I can make it into heaven because women have cooties. That's it. I, I mean, it's like an eighth grader <laughs> wrote this <laughs> with the, with the vocabulary vocabulary of an adult. I mean, just imagine how backwards society would have been throughout these last two millennia that had been a mark of what we considered God's word. Just the idea that women are, women are cattle, men are the smart ones. <laughs> and it's almost a, a flamboyant joke, but I mean, just to think that there was a group of people that actually tried to push that. So do you think these were, 
and this is just your opinion, but um, do you think that these were people who were just trying to, as you said, kind of piggyback off the real Gospels for their own kind of fame? Or do you think it was a group who was more nefarious, who were trying to sabotage the Christian movement by kind of introducing some of this poison, uh, some of this uh, heresy, or um, just crazy people who just decided, hey, I'm just going to just randomly write a gospel for for the bible you know you know honestly i would i would say all the above in that mm. sense like i think i think there was some well-meaning misinformed people who chose to believe a lie mm -hmm. um i think there's some people who intentionally muddy the waters like as in they may not have realized they were being Satan's instrument, but that's exactly what they were being. That's exactly what they were doing. They were muddying, they were attempting, I should say, attempting to muddy the waters so that, you know, future generations, like, we would have this debate right now. Like, I mean, there's people who will, you know, scholars and stuff like that who will look and say, well, the Gospel of Thomas, you know, even though it's like, Three centuries removed, and and clearly it's not by Thomas, but it should be, you know, like elevated or, or whatever and respected. I mean, that's exactly what the enemy does. He 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 um, raids as an angel of light and of wisdom, but in reality, he's the enemy, and he's just trying to take as many with him as he can. And so I think that's that. And then I think there was some people that were just crazy. Like, like they thought, you know, they legitimately thought like women were evil, and and the only way they can get to heaven is if if they became men. I think some people, some of these authors, genuinely believe that, but they were genuinely mistaken. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, while we can't pinpoint, you know, particular people or particular even particular people groups with these wild non-canonical things. There is one philosophy out there that was popular at the time that seems to have been able to really have its foothold in influencing all these people and the things they wrote. It was Gnosticism. Basically, it was uh, it was kind of a slice of Greek philosophy along with a little bit of this new Christianity that was coming around. So what would kind of happen, and I'm simplifying it on purpose because we're running out of precious minutes to talk about something that in-depth, but it would basically the gospel preached and their culture had an idea that you could kind of mix match everything go through the buffet get stuff you liked tweak it make it up as you go if it if, it, if that makes sense and that philosophy was teaching gnosticism i mean was teaching that this physical world full of hard things full of food full of air the things you can see and touch and taste this was evil the spiritual world that you cannot see was good. They, they believed that there was just a complete disconnect. So they were trying to take that philosophy and hijack Christianity with it because it was something that was new and flashy and exciting. They wanted to reel it into Gnosticism themselves. Now, there were so many different varieties of that Gnosticism that you can read you know, each one of these Gnostic Gospels and have a different idea of what they believed because whatever they happened to believe the specifics of their belief in their corner 
who would write these fake gospels claiming to be apostles in order to promote this new and flashy idea behind their teaching mm-hmm. instead. Like, women are evil. Let's jump on this brand new hype train named Jesus, this guy that Paul talks about all the time. And let's jump on this hype train and let's push Jesus by putting, giving him a cameo inside of this new, new teaching, this new doc, new doctrine, this new writing. Kind of like when, uh, use a, a modern example, it's kind of like when companies want to sell their product, so they will move heaven and earth to get a well-known celebrity in the commercial for that product. It's shampoo. You'll have Shaquille O'Neal, who doesn't have hair, in the commercial for the shampoo because people love Shaquille O'Neal, and if Shaq says it, then I'm going to buy it. It has his face on it. And so people were, you know, flocking, and it's the same idea with human nature. They're flocking after what's new and what they see is slowly becoming more and more popular in order to progress their own their own product. And so they were basically picking up the little pieces of the gospel that they could hear on the street as uh, people whispered about the stories of the apostles and what happened around Jesus. They were using those little pieces and putting them into their own little uh, make-believe stories to push their crazy ideas. For some people who were malicious against Christianity, they saw that as evil. There were people, like we just mentioned, people who saw the other gender as evil, people who saw other races as evil. I mean, it's as thick as the, the opinions that fly around today. Just whatever you happen to be for or against became the moral of the story that you were trying to write. And they just hijacked the name of Jesus in order to make it good. So almost like if I had to think of a parallel for today's time, um, it almost sounds like what some, some of that Gnostic philosophy would be kind of matches up a little bit to the concept of universalism that's kind of out there now where there are people who kind of cherry pick the best parts of each religion and in an attempt to not offend anyone and basically say everybody is right in their own way it's just you know not there's there's no religion that has it fully correct but if you take if you cherry pick these bits and pieces from all of these different religions, you can start to say, you know, everybody's kind of correct. Um, is that kind of a fair parallel for today's time or? I, I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't some of their thinking back then. Yeah. Because in that day and time, I mean, like Greek <clears throat> culture and Greek society was very popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could even be that was what they were marrying. They were trying to marry the two so they didn't offend anybody. I wouldn't be yeah. surprised. Oh, yeah. I, 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 from what I understand, that's a problem that they've constantly had in uh, on mission trips. And even uh, among uh, some of the early missions attempts of the apostles themselves, they would even have this culture that was so universalist that they would hear about Jesus. And they're trying to pound the point. It's like, no, 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 there's only one. Is it every good quality in each of these fictional gods and goddesses? They all point to him. the The good qualities are qualities of him alone. Let's simplify this. They would they would just go, oh no no, let's keep it complicated. Let's add Jesus to this shelf, but we'll worship all eighty seven. Yeah, or or you know like whenever Paul and um, 
Barnabas go to one of the cities and they call him, what was it, Hermes and... Um, oh, Hermes and Zeus. Yeah, Zeus. And like they're trying to equate them and, sac- and bring sacrifices to them. And Paul and Barnabas were like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, this isn't... <laughs> No, this isn't gonna fly. You're 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 wrong. Don't do that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Red alert. Red alert. But uh, to to get to the point of answering the question directly, yeah, Brian, you you hit the nail on the head. That's that's been a, a pocket of human nature for ages and ages and ages. There's nothing new under the sun. So you, we have this modern, uh, you know, new age universalist idea that it's really the same repackaged ancient ideas we have a new medium for it because people and i'm going to throw this one out there too to get to get your thoughts on it too is back then if you wanted to spread a uh, an idea no matter how wacky it was or brilliant it was you wrote a book and you got the the educated people who could read it to read it to the crowds you were hoping that it would be influential enough and convincing enough to get people to sway today we're actually doing the same thing we spread our own Gnostic Gospels in a different format, but we don't write them down. They won't be found in the ground. They might be found floating in cyberspace. Because today we, we write our own Gnostic Gospels in tweets. We write our own Gnostic Gospels in bizarre TikToks. I remember, and uh, maybe anyone out there, maybe you two have seen this one, but it went viral. It was a tip by a, a young guy. He used scripture. He, he did not use any Gnostic version of anything. He used the biblical scripture that we use read the story and his whole point was that jesus was a racist that he needed to repent of his racism before the father he's talking about that story where he he calls a gentile woman a dog that's not what he's doing at all i'll throw that out there i'm not going to chase that rabbit but he was not doing what he was not doing that in the story but that's how that boy in the tiktok chose to interpret it so there he's throwing out know hardcore racist jesus this version of jesus in his own mind throwing it at the screen and this was a modern idea of what the gnostics in all their shapes and sizes were doing they're taking their own version and throwing it at you through the page and so they 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 understood the legitimate followers of the real christ saw the urgent need eventually to write this down for real Make sure it would be very soon, make sure it would be very early, and make sure that they got all their P's and Q's together so that they reported the truth as they remembered it or as other people around them helped them to remember it. The community, the, the genuine community that held to the truth that from the beginning, they, they were the ones who helped each other to hold those pieces together long enough to be written down and preserved. It was very, very important because the, the very identity of Jesus in people's minds was at stake. Amen. And I, I just have one more question and um, not really sure how to ask it. Um, so let's say that we've got listeners out there who are very curious. They really like doing this kind of research. They really like going down these rabbit holes. Um, is there any, let me think about the best phrasing here, for a brand new Christian or someone who, well, even, you know, even someone who's been a Christian for a long time, but maybe have not done a lot of studying, or someone who's on the fence about Christianity, is there any, 
is there any risk for some of these people to start reading the apocrypha and reading some of the gnostic gospels like um with with our human nature does that run the risk of introducing some some prejudice some thoughts against the gospel like you mentioned you read the the gospel of judas but of course you know um you being highly educated in in the christian faith and really solid in your faith um i mean and i'm not trying to dissuade people from going and reading other literature and reading stuff i'm, I'm not saying that at all but is there a risk to that or should you be very fluent in the bible and really fluent in the gospel before you dig into some of that or i'm hoping i'm making sense yeah you're making oh, yeah. absolute sense and okay. what i would say is as i would say you need to read understand the bible what it says and, and you know talking about i mean i know it's kind of like a loaded question like 66 books really know all those but at least be able to discern the truth and what is presented in scripture before you start delving into anything outside of that so that you don't get dissuaded into something you know it's kind of like if you imagine you know if you because our inclination is to um, uh, to get puffed up about knowledge and things like that, mm -hmm. whether it be you know, heretical or what have you. Um, I would say read scriptures, read the genuine New Testament back and forth, through and through, the, all the time, every day, every day of the week. 365 days a year. That be your main focus. Then, you know, maybe after some time, once you kind of get the understanding of what the New Testament is, what it says, and you kind of, I say this very tentatively, occasionally kind of read something that's outside of Scripture. I'm not saying, you know, like, I'm not even going to give you a time frame, like, let's say, be a Christian for two years before you read something that's heretical or anything like that. I'm not saying that. But definitely know what the Scripture teaches about Jesus. Know what the Scripture teaches about you know, the gospel and, and, and um, things of that nature before you start reading anything else. Because if you don't have a clear understanding of the gospel, you don't have a clear understanding of what Christianity is, that's only going to muddy the water more. Whereas if you have a clear understanding of, of what Christianity is and what it isn't, and you can actually look at these things and say, wow, those are completely and totally different uh, things mm -hmm. than what lines up with Scripture. Kind of like, I mean, and, and I would never say, you know, through two years or three years or whatever, because people are different. I mean, yeah. you might... A, a bookworm and like hammer out have a you know the the gospels and hammer out the new testament and old testament and then within a year and then you could have an idea of what they say and what what it's supposed to say and kind of like what it teaches and you can open up something that's contrary to it and safely be able to discern between the two and say okay this is definitely not anything i should be Reading as sacred, whereas the Christian Bible, the Bible of you know the New and Old Testament, is something I should follow. Kind of like if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I would add, 
going, you know, beyond the baby steps, because obviously first step for any new believer should be just to focus on reading the Bible. I would uh, encourage, I mean, personally, I would encourage anybody to not step out and start reading whatever you find until at least you've read the entire Bible cover to cover firsthand. Don't go out and read some, uh, pick up something by, even something solid by Francis Chan, uh, you know, Max Lucado, nothing like that until you have taken time to read it for yourself with your own eyes. But then, um, I would say it's not the average person on the street, and like you, Brian, said, you know, for me, I'm like, I went and read the Gospel of Judas, but you know, I'm committed to the scholarship of it. I'm, I'm you know, with that 1% talking to the 99% out there. Uh, the person on the street, I would say the big danger isn't the ancient stuff, because chances of you picking it up or, or wanting to, for the most part, are very rare. It's the modern stuff that you've really got to be careful about as far as stuff that could be damaging to you if you don't know your stuff uh, well enough yet. Yeah. I'm talking about yeah. like that, those books you'll find in a bookstore by so-and-so Bible professor at so-so university. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is just dismantling what scripture says, saying that Paul never existed. Uh, one person I, I read, a, I found a book in the library done research on King David, and he believed that King David was never much a, an oppressed a, a king like we see him, but he was a very, very wealthy noble from birth. Hmm. And yeah, they humbled him in the writings to make him look better and more sympathetic. There's The, the evidence for that is so shaky, it's kind of pulling it out of the air. But it's so easy to swallow that if you have no foundation. And so um, I would recommend anybody, if for every book you find, do a little bit of internet research on the author before you even start reading the book. I would never tell you not to go and read a book. I'm an advocate for read everything, no censorship. Learn how to do it responsibly. If some wacko in a cave writes about a book about how Jesus had the third eye, he went over to the Orient and he gained powers beyond wildest imagination from a gin he found in the desert zero evidence for it and you would never know that until you actually get a look at who he who this author is and what he believes is he an atheist uh, is he on the fence is he going to be respectful of christianity does he want to bash christianity is he a christian believer and he's about to share why he believes like that josh mcdowell and that i recommended in the previous episode so who is this source that you're about to read um, and then there's some uh, something called progressive Christianity. It has, it touches politics, but it doesn't have so much to do with politics as theology itself. People who believe that Jesus is less than God, people who believe that the Bible is less than inspired, is he part of? Is he or she part of that camp? It'll it'll completely change the way you approach whatever they have to say, just knowing who they are and where they come from. I mean, a raging racist writing a biography of Martin Luther King Jr. That that was an actual illustration given to me by a Bible uh, by a professor. He said, "Would you trust that biography of Martin Luther King as much as you would trust something from one of his own family, you know, from a king who was uh, raised to, to respect Martin Luther King?" versus someone who was a leader in the KKK and decided to write a blasphemous biography of Martin Luther and denouncing everything he did, questioning all of his motives. 
two totally different pictures of the same man, and yet there was only one man who walked the earth with that name. Mm -hmm. It's the same with Jesus. Uh, You know, the people who, like Bart Ehrman, I think of. Bart Ehrman, his whole career is bringing Scripture apart, and yet he claims to, you know, be respectful of Scripture. And I don't mean that to bash Bart Ehrman. Um, All respect to any of his research, but I believe he's sincerely mistaken. really do. Uh, people, and I'll throw his name out one more time, Josh McDowell, anything by him, go ahead and pick up. He is very solid. He helped me come to the faith. But um, I would, all that to say, it's it's a lot of the modern stuff, the stuff that's hot off the press last week that could be more dangerous to the average believer, especially stuff on the internet. I haven't and, that yet. <laughs> and, and just to kind of follow up on that, this is, this is kind of tangentially related, but goes back to your point of before you dig into anything else, at least read the Bible from cover to cover. And I can't remember if we touched on this on another episode or not, um, but it, if, if we have, it bears repeating. I know like when I download the Bible app on my phone, there's dozens and dozens of translations of the Bible that I can choose from. Um, I know there's a little bit of controversy about some of them. I think we've talked about some of the controversy around the NIV and then there's the message and getting into some of that kind of stuff. Is there a, in your, in your guys' opinion, is there a kind of a best version for someone to read versus other versions that you might want to stay away from or translations um, as far as accuracy? Um, well, first off, one thing I would like to mention as far as like the message, and I believe it's the, the living Bible. I believe both of those are actually paraphrases. Yeah. In other words, yeah. they're not actual translations of scripture. Like, in when there's a translation made, whether it's the KJV or the ESV or whatever, you know, whatever one out there, they go to the original manuscripts. Hopefully, if it's a good translation, anyways, they'll go to the original manuscripts of Hebrew and Greek. They will cross-translate from Hebrew and Greek into English. And they will, and depending on uh, their methodology, they might go more of a word-for-word. Because every single translation is a word, a mixture of word-for-word and thought-for-thought. But in that, you have translations that really focus more on a word-for-word, like. What word correlates with this word? What I, you know, and if there isn't a word, what idea could we use to supplement this with? Um, so that way, you know, you get the word for word, thought for thought. There's two of those. But a, uh, a uh, paraphrase is someone who took the Bible, reads it, and then records kind of like their thoughts on the text. Not necessarily a direct translation. So, like the message for the Living Bible are two examples of paraphrases. Not necessarily bad, uh, like to read just uh, as a side note, as long as you see that they are actually paraphrases and not translations. Yeah. Um, so, I just want to make a quick note about that. And then, as far as good translations, I would say ESV, um, you know, New KJV. 
CSB, Christian Standard Bible. That's the correct Roman Christian Standard Bible. Um, I think those are a couple. Robert might have a few more, but those are the ones that I would recommend of those. Yeah. Uh, one of my biggest concerns, especially with brand new Christians, was always readability. Um, some people have reservations about the. Now, I would recommend every single one that Zach just said. They can be a little harder to read, and the reason for people out there who who are confused about the translations, these are translated in such a way that they're very, very strict and accurate in the way they reflect the originals. Some of that might be very hard, easy to read in Hebrew and Greek, hard to read in English. You've got to mold the the, the wording in in some other translations, the easier to read translations. What they do is they mold the wording a little bit so that it flows more smoothly in English without uh, without sacrificing any of the actual thoughts of the Hebrew and Greek, making sure that everything it says, it continues to say in a way that doesn't necessarily reflect the word-for-word -word structure of the Hebrew and Greek sentences themselves. So with caution, I would recommend things. Um, the NIV has had a little bit of heat details. It will teach you that Jesus is God. It will teach you that sin and salvation are genuine. It will give you an, a genuine translation of the Old and New Testament. So if you struggle reading your Bible, I would recommend that. I would especially recommend a new living translation, the NLT. It is the most simple, faithful translation without crossing over into the paraphrases that Zach warned about. NLT. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I've personally considered a preaching from that myself because we're in a TV culture instead of a literary culture. Your average Joe and Jane in the, in the pew, they know more about the Kardashians than about King David and King Solomon. So for the NLT to speak to them more directly, I've considered that. I haven't done it yet. I haven't bit the bully, bullet on that yet, but I've considered it for real. And uh, those those are the, the, the two I would add to that recommendation. But for a new Christian or for just somebody who is a little overwhelmed reading their Bible, if they're not a big reader otherwise, I would recommend the NLT wholeheartedly because it's faithful and it's not a paraphrase. It's a genuine translation. Nice. Excellent. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, I know we're running uh, pretty much right at time here. I tell you, my mind's been blown because a lot of this type of stuff that we covered here, a lot of the Apocrypha, some of the Agnostic Gospels, um, I've never really researched or knew anything about. So this has just kind of been just... But um, <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, so I, I've loved it. Um, I hope our listeners, I hope you guys out there did too. Uh, guys, I can't thank you enough. This has been incredible. Um, any other last minute thoughts uh, kind of before we close out? And uh, what can our listeners look forward to? Where do we kind of want to jump into uh, the next couple of episodes? We could talk a little bit about the early church. Yeah, let's talk about the early church right now. Yeah, I, that's <laughs> that's exactly where my eyes went. I thought, you know, we talked Old New Testament. Now we can start 
start talking about early church and acts and then maybe that would segue into the differences between the modern church and the early church uh we had that on the list as well so i think those would be a a, a good starting point for next uh next series yeah that sounds like a good idea yep okay sounds good um well hey guys i really appreciate it uh i will talk to y'all uh next time so uh thanks everyone Thank you. Yeah, thanks, man.